Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. From the moment that Jackie Kennedy branded the Kennedy presidency as Camelot, in an interview with author and historian Teddy White, royalty was suddenly bestowed upon the survivors. The recoil effect from that simple phrase on Bobby, on Teddy, and the rest of the family was impactful. But at least they were able to understand and process it. For JFK Jr., he would immediately become a prince without any say in the matter. As he came of age, emotionally, physically, and politically, he was permanently marked by the mythology. It shaped every aspect of his public and private life right up to his untimely death. Some men and women choose to live in the public eye. Others, like royalty, like William and Harry, for example, are just born there and have to come to grips with it. John F. Kennedy Jr. was as close as we've gotten in America to royalty. He was America's prince. How well it served him and his country is still an open question. One explored by my guest Stephen Gillen, a historian and longtime Kennedy friend, in his new book, America's Reluctant Prince. Stephen Gillen is the scholar-in-residence at the History Channel and a professor of history at the University of Oklahoma. He's one of the nation's leading experts on modern American history and politics. His articles have appeared in numerous publications, and it is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Gillen back to this program to talk about his new book, America's Reluctant Prince, The Life of John F. Kennedy Jr. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's nice to be back again. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the fascinating parts about this story is the way in which John F. Kennedy Jr. really had no say in the public role that he would ultimately come to. Talk a little bit about that and about his sort of, from what you understand and what you've researched, his first understanding of, of his place in the world. So I think for John, that's that moment, uh, November 25th, 1963, when John raised his right hand and saluted his father's casket, mm -hmm. that all the unfulfilled hopes and expectations of the Kennedy presidency transferred to John. And there was always this expectation that John was going to be the person who would bring Camelot back to life. And that, that's the burden that John lived with, the burden of expectation that he was going to um, enter public life, which is why the book is titled Reluctant Prince, because John... John's great struggle in his life was to forge an identity separate from the expectations that other people imposed upon him. John used to tell me that he was two people, that he was just John, just a typical privileged member of his generation. But he played a role, and the role he played his whole life was that of John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr., the, you know, the son of a beloved slain president. Um, and so John was acutely aware from a young age of uh, this duality. And what was fascinating about John, and I think a great credit to his character, was that he never confused the two. He, when he was in public, for the most part, especially he was at a public event, he played the role of John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. But when he was, when he was with friends and, and not in public, you would see a different side of John. You know, what I remember most about John was a sense of humor. Um, he loved making fun of people, especially me. He, um, he was a great mimic. He loved telling stories. Uh, but John, John's great achievement was that he 
end up, despite all these, these burdens, this burden of expectation, he ends up being an incredibly down-to-earth, decent, unpretentious person. How much was that burden mitigated by the role that his uncles played? How much was it mitigated by first that mantle being transferred to Bobby and later to Teddy? Well, I think yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, Bobby, John's eight years old when Bobby is, is dead. So, right. the, you know, the, uh, and Ted's expectation, the expectation that Ted will be one day be president ends in 1980 when he runs and loses the Democratic nomination. So John's 20 years old. So at just the point that his uncles no longer um, are going to fulfill that legacy, John is coming of age. And I think it all transfers to John. Um, and uh, and he, he carried it remarkably well. How did he see his role in relationship to his sister's role? Obviously, it was a different world we lived in at that time, you know, not that many years ago. But how did he see the difference in his role in terms of carrying on the Kennedy legacy? I don't think he saw it as any different. I think it was it was the way the public viewed them. Um, And it was, you know, it was John who saluted the casket. It was John who was. Uh, named after his father, and he was, you know, incredibly good-looking, charismatic, and so it was natural that all those expectations would trans- transfer to John. I don't think he ever thought that that uh, that he should be the the person, and they're not Caroline. It just so happened that that that, that was that was imposed upon him. Talk a little bit about his political coming of age. When did that happen? When did he decide that he was going to have to take up this mantle, that, that whatever he did in the short run, that ultimately politics had to be part of that calling? It's, it, was a, it, was a, it was a gradual process uh, in the last couple of years of his life where he would reveal that he was thinking actively of getting involved in politics. So, for example, I remember it must have been 1998, the winter of 1998, and we had played racquetball at the New York Athletic Club in downtown New York, and and they had a little restaurant. We were sitting there, and John was, I remember he was eating tomato soup, and he had spent the afternoon on a on a uh, ice skating ring with a bunch of underprivileged children in Harlem, and they were all clinging to him. He was going around the ice. And he said, you know, what those people need, what those kids need is hope. They need to know that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And he paused and he looked at me and he said, I can do that. I can give them that hope. So that's when I, that was the first glimpse I got that he was, this was, I think John realized he kept politics at a distance. And now he's realizing that it really was a part of his DNA. He wasn't going into politics because he was a Kennedy. It was because he actually felt the calling. And then you know, when the Senate seat came up, Daniel Patrick Moynihan resigned, and there's a Senate seat in New York in 2000, right. which Hillary Clinton eventually filled. John thought seriously about that, but he worried that Carolyn uh, would not be able to handle the pressures of the campaign. And he had other problems, too, that he was, that he was dealing with. But in his last, some of his last conversations, he was talking about running for governor of New York. How much did this legacy and this burden and all of the things that we were talking about, how much did it impact his personal life? You talk about his, his marriage, his relationship. To what extent did it filter down and, and inevitably have an impact on his personal life? Um, you know, what was remarkable is how John carved out a private life separate from everything else. Um, 
that John was only John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. when he was in public. And when he wasn't in public, uh, he was he was really a very different person. And he was able to, he surrounded himself with a core group of close friends who protected his privacy so he could feel safe and he could feel comfortable uh, uh, with them. So I think it really, it only gets, it gets complicated when he gets married because John had, been surrounded by the paparazzi his entire life and he had somewhat of a respectful relationship with them they they didn't bother him that much but once he got married it just it just became horrible and and they hunted carolyn like an animal and john uh john was very protective of her because he knew how how much it was um hurting her and and that's where after he's married is where the the wall that he had constructed between his public life and his private life crumbled. What did she understand? What did Carolyn understand about what she was getting into the reality of, of his life? You know, they both believed, they both honestly believed that once John was married, that all the fuss would go away. That John was no longer the most eligible bachelor, that he would not be the sexiest man alive. And they would just live a, you know, a quiet life and, and have a family. Um, and so they were both shocked by the amount of, of attention, especially focused on Carolyn uh, after they were married. And that became really difficult for her, uh, challenging for him. Um, uh, so it, it, was, it ended up being a really difficult time those last two years. But even at that point, he had this understanding, I mean, as you write about it, he had this understanding of what his public role was, of his role in the media, that while he hated the paparazzi and he hated the invasion of privacy <laughs> at many points, he was also happy to see his name on page six uh, occasionally. <laughs> That's right. So John, the thing about John, and I used to say he was reverse Superman. Uh, Superman goes into a phone booth and puts on his uniform. John goes into a phone booth and uh, takes his shirt off. So if John, if John wasn't in the news for a couple of weeks, I can guarantee you there would be a touch football game in Central Park, regardless of the weather, and John would have his shirt off. Um, and his mother was the same way. You know, they had this love-hate relationship with the media. They, they, they didn't like this, the invasion of privacy, but they also wanted to be in public. They, John had never not been in public from the time he was conceived practically. So it was woven into the fabric of his life. And if he, and he, he worried that he would sort of disappear and people would forget him. And uh, so the best way for him to get back in the news was to take his shirt off. Did he have that fantasy ever about being able to just disappear, to go away somewhere, to, to magically not be in the public light all the time? No, not he never said anything like that to me. I would imagine that he had those moments. I, I have no doubt that he did. Um, there were times where it just grated on. So when he passed the, when he failed the bar, the second time that he failed, he got a bottle. I think it was Jack Daniels and drove to some cabin in the woods and spent a weekend there. I mean, he literally just dropped out of sight. Um, and so there were those moments when it was difficult for him, but for the most part, he understood being who he was, uh, provided him with great privileges. And uh, and it also provided him with some responsibility. One of the stories I tell in the book was about when John, in 1968, when his uncle, Senator Robert Kennedy, was running for president, uh, when he would sometimes come by and tuck John and Caroline in. And um, it must have been right after Christmas because John 
had gotten an easy bake oven and Robert came in and sat down next to John and John was really proud. He just made a new cake. <laughs> and, um, Robert said to him, so John, what do you want to do when you grow up? And John said, I want to be a baker. And the way John described it, Robert very gently grabbed him by the shoulder and says, you can't become a baker. You're a Kennedy. You've been given great privileges. You have a responsibility to help people who are less fortunate. And I think John carried that with him his entire life, that he had to lead a life of meaning and purpose. Um, and, and I think that, so maybe he wanted to disappear every once in a while. But overall, he had a pretty clear mission in his life. And talk about his relationship with his mother, with Jackie. They had a remarkably close relationship. What I didn't know, and I learned, is that you know, Jackie would stay behind the scenes. Um, so she knew that John was absent-minded, that she had a short attention span. Uh, so she would, make, she would contact people in her large circle of friends and have them reach out to John and give him guidance or, or to um, make sure he got an application in or to help him get these competitive internships. So she was always present in his life, even when he didn't know it. And, uh, you know, she was a single mother. She raised John and, and Caroline uh, largely by herself. And, uh, and John, you know, John loved his mother deeply, and he also really respected her and respected the way she chose to live her life. And did she have a vision for him? Did she have an idea of what she wanted him to do and be? You know, there's been a lot written that she didn't want John to become an actor and that she said uh, that, you know, that he, she didn't want him to, to, to she would disown him or, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, if he, he went into acting. And well, none of that's true. It was what Jackie told John was that he had to lead a meaningful life. And John knew that being an actor was not a, what he would consider to be a meaningful life, not her, but what he considered not to be a meaningful life. So, um, so John, uh, so she, she's Jackie provided this general guideline and allowed John to decide for himself what a meaningful life would be. Talk a little bit about his business ventures, about George Magazine, what, what he really thought of that. Was that just a step along the way? What was the nature of his commitment to that? Well, John, what's fascinating about John is when he launched his George Magazine with his business partner, Michael Berman, he, uh, John is in there from 9 in the morning, sometimes till midnight, 1 in the morning, uh, what amazed people who worked there, some of the editors and staff, was that here's a guy who could be doing anything he wanted. I mean, he could be serving on boards and doing all these, uh, you know, uh, things that didn't require a lot of work. But here John is right next to them sweating, uh, trying to get the magazine out. And that's, you know, John did not want to uh, be known just because of his last name. He wanted something, an accomplishment. He wanted people to know him for the things that he did and things he accomplished. And George was his big venture. Um, and the idea was that John believed there was a merger between politics and popular culture. And, um, and he, I mean, that was John's life. Um, he was at the intersection of uh, popular culture and politics. And he saw George as a way of humanizing politics, of using the celebrity culture as a way of 
making politicians uh, more uh, approachable. Um, and it was a, it was a, uh, it was ahead of its time. I mean, I think now we, uh, we, we see in that that merger has certainly taken place, not necessarily in the way John, I think anticipated. Um, but, uh, but overall the magazine struggled. It struggled to find that sweet spot. Um, and there's a lot of confusion about what John's role was going to be. Uh, David Pecker and the people at Hachette wanted John to be out there all the time. They wanted to sort of be a John Kennedy fan club magazine. And John was very clear that he just wanted to be an editor and wanted to stay behind the scenes and allow the magazine to speak to the, its talented uh, staff. Yeah. You mentioned David Pecker. They try to get this magazine, John and, and his partners try to get this magazine together in a lot of places who turned them down until David Pecker, yeah. who at that point was at Hachette, said yes. That's right. I mean, they went everywhere, uh, and everyone turned them down. There's no politics. There's never been a successful mass circulation magazine about politics. John, well, John went to uh, a seminar on how to launch a magazine, and on the first day, uh, the teacher got up and said, "You know, there's you two things you cannot uh, topics you cannot cover in a successful magazine are politics and religion." Um, so John walked out. Um, so it was a bold venture, and people, even with John's celebrity, even John's name attached to it, they just felt that it, it could not work. And, I, and David Pecker understood the vision for the magazine, uh, and, and uh, they weren't ideal partners for a variety of reasons, but they were the only partner John and Michael Berman were able to get. But it really was, to your point earlier, it really was ahead of its time, the idea of celebrity culture and politics merging the way they did. Uh, now it's become completely one, but it, at the time it was pretty cutting edge. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And people, and most people at the time doubted that that could ever happen. Um, but John, you know, John saw the Clinton election in 2000 as sort of a major turning point. Uh, and he believed that Clinton's election um, and the way he won election, wherever he played the saxophone on uh, on Senior Hall, John saw that as an indication of how this these two cultures were coming together. And I, you know, I think he, um, and he also John had this vision of post partisanship. He did, he wanted politics. He believed that politics were going to become less partisan. Parties were going to be less important. Um, and in many ways, he you know he misunderstood the historical moment. I mean, politics was actually becoming more polarized and political divisions uh, more right. intense. So the concept of the merger between politics and popular culture was a good one, but there are many other flawed assumptions in the magazine. Talk a little bit in the little time we have left about what you saw with respect to his ability to change and to grow and to evolve and, and, and speculate, if you will, for a minute about how that might have continued with him. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I... John, I'll tell you one way that John changed that sort of was very telling, I think, is that, you know, I mentioned he's the reluctant prince. He doesn't go into politics. So part of that is he wants to keep his father's legacy at a distance. So he, he refers to, when I first met him in the 80s, he referred to his father as President Kennedy. And later in the early 90s, he referred to him as uh, my father. And those last couple of years, he called him my daddy. And I think what you see there, I think as John's becoming more comfortable with entering politics and his own identity, that he's able to embrace his father in a way that he never could before. So what John would have done, you know, uh, he certainly 
uh, I think John had ambitions to run for president. And he said to a friend one time, he said, I want to go home, referring to the White House. Uh, but I, refer, I prefer to remember John for the life that he lived and not for what he may have become. Um, and, uh, and people can speculate as to what impact he would have had uh, had he lived. Um, but we'll just, uh, tragically, we'll never know. Stephen Gillen. The book is America's Reluctant Prince, The Life of John F. Kennedy, Jr. Stephen, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks. I always enjoy talking with you. Thank you, Stephen.